Welcome to Aspect Radio. I have been Flanagan, and joining me on the phone, as always, is Corey Kraft from up there in Birmingham. So, Corey, we're approaching a month now since the release of the film that kicked off the summer movie season in 2016, Captain America Civil War, probably the most anticipated summer movie for most movie fans out there, especially comic book movie fans. This is one of those that could be eligible for the end-all, be-all comic book movies just because of how many characters established in this Marvel Cinematic Universe, which has been such an enormous success, would be on the screen at the same time. And the fact that they were fighting each other this time around just made it that more appealing. So we're late here, but I'm not as late talking about it just because I only saw the movie about a week ago. And I, I can blame my infant daughter if I want to, but I'm going to maybe not do that plead the fifth and just <laughs> buckle down and, and talk about it anyway. But I finally saw this thing, Corey, and I, I was just as pumped as anybody. Everybody loves the MCU. They, they've pretty much nailed every movie that they've made. I mean, with, with very rare missteps, they're, they're pretty much batting a thousand. Even if you want to call them this, plenty of people would call the missteps, even good movies. And, and this one just seemed like a big culmination of, of it all in that it was kind of a quasi Avengers movie. And, and for me, really, this is like, I mean, it's like cinematic junk food, but it's really just like, it's like a, it's like an IV of junk food that actually has some substance. It asks, it asks some big questions, but it doesn't ask you to think too hard because most of the time fists and, and bodies and, and lasers and, and all sorts of crazy things are flying across the screen. So for you, a big, Captain America fan and a Marvel fan and comic book fan in general, I, I imagine this probably lived up to the hype. Oh, sure. Yeah, I mean, you nailed it. it it's junk food, but as far as junk food goes, this is top-tier junk food. I mean, this is as good as junk food gets. And I think key to the success of Captain America Civil War, you know, apart from the relatively cool factor of seeing so many of our favorite superheroes not only represented on screen, but basically punching the hell out of each other on screen. Uh, what really makes this a cut above is, well, you mentioned two words that are uh, establishing uh, these characters, uh, and, and you mentioned that this is a culmination in a lot of ways of what Marvel has uh, established, has built in what is it now, 13 previous films, 14 previous films, uh, some number of uh, very patiently uh, constructed individual films, a few team-up films, uh, little cameos and crossovers between them. But but for me, this is just as satisfying as uh, The Avengers, uh, perhaps a touch more satisfying than the second Avengers film, Age of Ultron because the emotional stakes that have been pretty patiently established in each of the prior uh, individual films, uh, they really reach uh, sort of a climax here. Uh, the character of Captain America and the, cap the character of Iron Man uh, are pitted against one another in ways that are logical developments uh, from their previous characterization. And, and that, to me, is key for making this movie not only... Uh, work, but actually tell a you know reasonably emotional story you know, for a movie like this. 
apart from that, I, you know, it, it's epic in length and scope, but it never feels uh, too long. Uh, it is absolutely stuffed with character and incident. And to me, it's kind of a wonder that it balances all of these characters, all of these plot threads, as gracefully as it seems to you. I don't know how you came away from the film uh, thinking about it, but, but to be perfectly honest, I, I couldn't believe, after one viewing, that it worked as well as it did, because we've seen so many of these team-up movies go completely awry. Yeah, I, I wanted to see it as soon as I finished it, again. Like, I, yeah. I just... It, like. The, the, the junk food thing is a, is a fine analogy, but it's almost like it's nutritional junk food in that it, it, it does make you think in a way that blockbusters and certainly comic book movies don't tend to, to do. And even for that matter, MCU movies. And, and it's probably arguably their, their most thoughtful movie to date, just in terms of sort of the, the philosophical divide that, emerges between Captain America and Iron Man, obviously. And, Corey, but before we go on, so, so, something I want to spend some time on is this divide that they create for these two characters, the two leads. And, and they obviously needed some sort of fundamental schism to happen between the two that, like you said, reflected the previous characterizations of the two from, from past movies. And I think that they did that. And, and I think they did it successfully they needed a good reason for these guys to punch the hell out of each other. And at one point in the movie, it goes from philosophical to personal. And I think that that is where the movie really takes off and, and reaches that higher level. And the climax of this movie is just so exciting because of the tension and, and the personal harm they t intend to do on each other. Yeah. So something is revealed about three of the characters. And, and that, to me, is is what separates it from something like Age of Ultron, which, again, if, if you want to just start making a list of cinematic junk food, Ultron is on there, and that movie is fantastic, and it's a ton of fun. But, Corey, while I think that it works for the sake of creating that dramatic tension between the characters, i got to tell you that specifically what it is, it goes back to this theme of avoiding collateral damage. The fact that the Avengers have become arguably a detriment to society in that they they perform without license. They they take the law into their own hands and protect the earth, even if that means inflicting some of that collateral damage on the human race. And at what cost must human humanity pay in order for these people with these enhanced powers to protect them? And for me, Corey, I'm just really kind of sick of this theme in these movies, and it's something that Joss Whedon and Marvel addressed in Age of Ultron sort of ad nauseum. I thought it was overkill in that movie in that I just honestly don't think that despite the, the clamoring online that these movies even have to address it. I think they can do it in passing, but they spend honestly parts of the entire movies telling everybody, look, we're sorry, we're going to avoid that this time. Batman versus Superman obviously did the same thing after people had such a, a negative reaction and went into a frenzy online when it comes to what kind of collateral damage took place, perhaps indirectly, and in that they weren't thinking about it when they make all of these superheroes and villains you know, bust through skyscrapers and tear 
these metropolitan areas apart. I don't know about you, but for me, the fact that they used this trope now that it's become in these superhero movies to set up all of the action and move it forward, while I think it was organic, it's just something that I wish they would move past because, honestly, I was over it as soon as people started talking about it after they had seen the movies that didn't directly address it. Well, here's why I think it works here. I mean, I think it's handled all all the more thoughtfully in this film than it is in something like Batman versus Superman, which I believe is the last time we did one of these shows, actually. Um, I, I think it works better here. It's it's certainly a little bit more, well, a less less brooding here, I think, is pretty safe to say, even though this, this ends up, as you mentioned in its climax, being kind of a, a surprisingly heavy uh, movie. But the reason I think it works here is because uh, Marvel sort of branches it from the characters. Um, it is not something that is uh, just sort of foisted upon them. I think that this has been a concern of Tony Stark's ever since 2008's original Iron Man movie, the idea that he is directly responsible for harming civilians, for harming innocents. It's why he sells uh, his his weapons manufacturing uh, company, which is you know a major plot point in that film. So it, so it works, I, I think, coming from him. Just as I think Captain America, you know, living through World War II and coming out of it into a very corrupt uh, Shield organization, as we've seen in his individual films. Uh, is responsible enough to know that, that uh, uh, yes, it's a burden he has to bear, but, but whatever will help the most people uh, is the necessary course of action. So I, I agree that, that it is becoming kind of an overused story trope, uh, but I think it feels so natural here uh, that it's kind of hard to avoid it, not to mention the fact that Marvel brings back from the sort of red-headed stepchild of the uh, MCU, uh, the Incredible Hulk, they bring back uh, Thunderbolt Ross, uh, here played by William Hurt, as sort of a, a tertiary sort of antagonist, uh, who, if nothing else, in his dealings with Bruce Banner, is incredibly concerned <laughs> with collateral damage, I suppose, and, and putting a stop to these reckless uh, superhumans. So all of that works, but... I think that's kind of window dressing for the ultimate, more personal conflict that comes to develop, the frustration that grows between these two characters in particular, leading to, well, something that would be a shame to spoil. And and that, to me, is what sets this apart from most of the MCU. After one film of an, uh, after another of stakes that are that are just getting wildly out of control, right? And the first Avengers... New York is threatened. And the second Avengers, they lift a whole country into the sky. This this film, this Captain America film, dials it back, dials it way back. So it's just a couple people fighting in one location. But it has the weight of these very, very big climaxes in these other films because we know these characters, because uh, – we understand where each of them is coming from, and, and most painfully of all, I think, we understand that neither of them is wrong. We can see both of their points of view. Absolutely, and I agree with pretty much everything you said. All I'll say about the Iron Man exploration of the similar theme and that Tony doesn't want to sell weapons 
to, to people who, you know, could turn around and hurt his own country and, and people in general throughout the world. That that was back, what, in 2008, and that was not a direct response to Internet criticism in the way that I think the collateral damage thing has become ever since Man of Steel and even the Avengers came out. And I just think it's it's time to move on. We hear you. We know you get it. And at this point, it just feels like these studios are on a mission to cover their asses and avoid that and to say, look, we're listening to y'all, so we've made it better and we've turned it into a major theme in our movies. And, you know, I just I, I just don't recall. Obviously, we didn't have Twitter and, and, and the Internet at the level that it is in the 90s when other movies that had mass destruction and action, I mean, if you think of something like Independence Day, like shouldn't shouldn't we be accounting for all the collateral damage that's going on in Independence Day or these other big <laughs> movies? I'm not sure Roland Emmerich would even hear that criticism, <laughs> even even entertain that criticism if you heard it. But you know what I mean? Like it just seems like a, 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 one of those one of those solutions before there was ever a problem in a way. And it just it hasn't worked for me in one of these movies yet. And honestly, if they'd have just if they'd have just taken care of it with a line, I would have been fine. But it turns into the crux of the entire movie. And like I said, you needed something to make it all go in Civil War. And if it's going to be that something, that's fine because I think, like you said, it does work. Uh, it's organic enough to make it all happen. I'm just personally kind of done with it. And if if they bring it back in the next movie, I, I don't know. I'm going to pull my hair out. I don't know, man. I think Thanos is showing up in the next one to just like blow up the planet. So there's there's only so much they can do there. Right. There's so much happening here, and again, like I, they, pretty much everything about this movie is entertaining. There's there's a, not this is like a, a nitpick on my part. Like the one thing I found to nitpick about this entire experience because this has really been like again like sort of the comic book movie at least for Marvel, that a lot of people were wait, waiting for. But another minor nitpick that I have with this, Corey, that speaks to the rest of the movie, I've, I've got this weird issue with Captain America movie titles, right? Or at least you know, <laughs> subtitles in one case. Like, because if I go back to the Winter Soldier, while you know Bucky and, and the Winter Soldier character has obviously played a huge role in the overall narrative and, and is huge here in Winter, Winter Soldier – I just didn't think that movie's title reflected what the movie was really all about. The fact that they called it Winter Soldier when he, I think, was kind of a pawn in the overall game. It was kind of a, a, a red herring in a way. And I, I think they should have called that movie something like Captain America Hail Hydra, which some friends of mine have said, like, that would be a spoiler. Like, okay, whatever, fine. And this, this movie, like... It's the third Captain America movie, but there's just so much going on. It's just one of the busiest comic book movies today. And yes, while it is technically a Captain America movie, they they should have just called it Avengers Civil War or Marvel Civil War or something. Because I mean, when you boil it all down, if you, if you I mean, you can make arguments all you want about it being from the point of view of of Steve Rogers. It, it's told from pretty much his and Tony Stark's points of view, and and I just have kind of a weird fundamental problem calling it Captain America: Civil War. Did that did that ever did that ever come up for you? Or are you fine with it? Uh, I thought about it briefly, but but again, the point of view 
issue is I think what settled it for me. That's I, I came around on it mostly being or in, being enough of a Captain America movie uh, to justify that title. Um, I, you know, I, I, as much as as we are sort of sympathetic toward Tony Stark, and as much as he is the second most prominent character in the film, uh, I, I think there's enough from Cap's point of view it, it, that it sort of tips the scales in that direction. So so I did think about it. You know, you could also say, well, they're saving the Avengers designation for the big culminating films with, you know, where they all show up and not just, you know, this is most of them, and then a bunch of new characters who I suspect we'll talk about in a second. Um, but Thor and Hulk are jetting around who knows where, and, and you don't have Nick Fury. Uh, there's some missing elements here that would, uh, preclude it from being a full Avengers movie, but it's as close, I think, as it's going to get uh, without going that full mile, I guess. Yeah. No, that's true, but I mean, you know, at the end of Avengers Age of Ultron, Steve Rogers is standing there in the frame saying, Avengers assemble to a group of people, all of whom are in this movie, right? We're like, we're just missing Thor and the Hulk from making it the Avengers that everybody knows of in the MCU, but again, this is a nitpick and I've got a couple more, but man, you mentioned, you know, finally when these, these two groups get together at this airport, which I didn't, I didn't love the setting to be quite honest with you where all this action goes down, but the action itself helps you forget all about it just because of how freaking awesome it is. Once they start locking horns, but another just geeky question here that I'm sure plenty of people have asked at this point, you being way more familiar with the source material just more familiarity with the character. One side has vision and the other doesn't. So how is this not just over in a flash if <laughs> if, if vision is there and can pretty much do everything as this godlike superhero with pretty much every power imaginable? Yeah, the only thing I think preventing that from happening is the fact that vision doesn't want to hurt them. <laughs> um, I, you know, what I love about that airport scene is uh, I think summed up in the first confrontation between Hawkeye and Black Widow there, where they're fighting, and um, one of them turns to the other and says, uh, you know, after this is over, we're still friends, right? And the other says, well, it just depends on how hard you hit me. <laughs> uh, you know, they're they're fighting. These two groups are fighting, but what I love about it is it's not, uh, you know, the, the goal is not outright outright destruction. The goal is incapacitation because... These two groups like each other. They don't want to do this. Uh, it's it's sort of a, a last resort confrontation, which leads to a lot of really inventive actions, good laughs. You know, it's not uh, they're not trying to kill each other, uh, which is why you have teenage Peter Parker flying around there, uh, <laughs> thanks to uh, Tony Stark's interference, and why you have uh, so many of the people who are fighting still in awe of, of Iron Man and, and, uh, and Captain America, like, uh, well, like perhaps the that fight's secret weapon, uh, Scott Lang is played by Paul Rudd, uh, Ant-Man, who gets some of the be- biggest laughs from the movie in that one scene. Oh, yeah. The, I believe this is yours, Captain America. Like that, that, that cracked was, me up. That was great. But, yeah, there's another great line that sort of refers to what you're talking about, where Scarlet Witch takes out the immediate opponent of somebody else and they turn to Scarlet Witch and she says, you're pulling your punches to the character. 
And I, I think that's something you could say about pretty much everybody in that fight is that they're pulling their punches until it gets real there, right? Yeah. And, and is it Vision who says he was distracted in a moment and it causes his his beam or whatever to to hit War Machine yep. and he goes down and is is you know seemingly permanently injured there and it goes to a whole new level and that's again that's not the the, the moment that I'm talking about where it goes from philosophical to personal even though that is kind of a moment where it does escalate in a way that I don't think anybody there expected it to, and it creates a new tension within the universe. And it's really interesting to see where it goes from there. But what's interesting is that, you know, again, there are moments where they they take some time to talk and they take some time to understand each other's point of view, and, and some of them even switch from one side to the other mid-fight. And those were just really fun bait-and-switch moments, especially when it comes down to, Tony Stark and Steve Rogers there at the end before it does get really real between them. And these guys start throwing these, these blows where they are not pulling punches and they mean to hurt each other. And it's just such an awesome fight there at the end. And, you know, maybe before we get to, to sort of closing it out and talking about the climax or whatever, there is an actual villain in this movie that it was not – part of the marketing in the least and that's this Zemo character here played by Daniel Brühl who people will remember obviously from Inglorious Bastards and and Rush if they saw that movie he's a great young actor who just kind of squirmed his way into the MCU to play this villain that I'm guessing you know most moviegoers are less familiar with than most of the the Marvel villains out there but did you think Daniel Brühl and his character Zemo brought a lot to this story, or do you think that he just gets reduced to being kind of a fringe character who barely pulls many strings at all? Like, did you did you like the inclusion of the character, did you, or did you think that he was needed? No, I, I loved him. I thought I thought he was terrific. You know, there's a little bit of, and and we see this in blockbuster villains from. The villain in Skyfall, Silva to to Khan, Star Trek in the Darkness, uh, tracing back to the Joker, right in the Dark Knight. There's there's a little bit of the all controlling puppet master villain in him, who orchestrates so many moving parts as part of some sort of grand uh, manipulative plan, right? Uh, you know, I. I I'm getting kind of tired, I think, of, of villains ending up in captivity and, like, snarling at the hero, saying, like, well, I'm just what I, where I want to be. This was part of my plan and so forth. Uh, but Zemo kind of pulls away from that a little bit, and I think that the credit is due in large part to Brule, uh, who grounds that character in, in a very, uh, well, identifiable emotional Tenor. I mean, the character is motivated by something that, that will probably, you know, most viewers will probably figure it out uh, before it is fully revealed, but the motivation is understandable, and, and I think that Zemo fits so well into this movie because that's one of the major sort of thematic thrusts of the film, uh, this idea of, of vengeance, right? Uh, and whether or not you choose to let it consume you. We see that in so many of the other characters, uh, from Captain America to Tony Stark to uh, Bucky to this, this new uh, addition to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, uh, Black Panther, played by Chadwick Boseman here. 
uh, who is on his own sort of mission of vengeance uh, as the film develops. Uh, we see so many of these characters struggle with that question, and seeing uh, sort of Zemo's plan play out, I think it's schematically uh, pretty perfect. Yeah, you know, I, I think I agree with you, and I think it's probably mainly because I just like the actor Daniel Brühl so much, and I'm glad to see him getting this kind of an opportunity. And even if he is sort of in the background, I think w- when we spend time with him, it's really like sub- substantive, and and he he like you said, he brings an emotional weight to it that you buy. And I mean, if he, he if this character, tell me if I'm wrong, this character in the comics doesn't he like have like a purple costume and is masked. Yeah, he's altogether more flamboyant. Right. So, I mean, I'm not sure if they could have made that work. And, and look, the MCU doesn't try to pretend that it exists in the real world. I mean, we've gone pretty intergalactic at this point where pretty much anything can happen. But I do like the way that he was used, and perhaps he will reemerge in some sort of wacky costume. I mean, good Lord, Doctor Strange is coming up, and Lord knows what we're going to see in that in terms of the cosmic universe. So I, I do like the character, and I do like that moment towards the end of the movie that he shares with Black Panther. That's wonderful. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice scene. It, it speaks to some of the larger themes in the movie without getting too heavy-handed or hokey. And that's the thing. Like, this movie could have gotten really hokey, and it didn't. And, you know, again, I want to go back to the sort of nerdy questions about this and, and what we loved about it. So I, I'm pretty sure that, you wore a Captain America hat when you went and saw this movie at yeah. the theater. So I'm guessing that going into it, you're team Captain America all along. I, I'm going into it just because I like the movies that much more, the character really. I'm 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 team Iron Man just because, you know, look, it's just such a great character who has set this whole franchise into motion. And I got to tell you, during that last sequence, the, the, the triple threat match between <laughs> Captain America, Iron Man, and, and Winter Soldier – when spoiler alert, when when Iron Man lops off Bucky's metal arm, I like screamed yeah like that. So I firmly remained on the the Iron Man bandwagon. Did you like? Did you did you stick with Captain America as you were watching it? Of course I did. Yeah, I mean you know I love Iron Man. I, I want these two to make up and be buds again. But uh, but I'm Team Cap all the way, uh, and and that's in large part. To, I mean, I, I, I prefer these, these Captain America films over the Iron Man films. I mean, that's a slight margin, but it's but it's there. Um, and and Chris Evans, you know, I, I don't think he gives as as reliably, you know, decent of a, of a sort of movie star magnetic performance as Robert Downey Jr. But but there is something really really uh, solid. Uh, uh, stalwart, I guess, uh, about him as Captain America, really reliably good-natured and, and appealing. And, and I, I, I think he's at his best uh, in this film. Uh, I think this is his best go-around as the character. Yeah, it's, he's a great character. He really is, and Evans brings so much to the role. And I mean, I've talked to our friend Ben Stark about this a couple of times, and he's a huge Superman fan, and I know you're a big Superman fan, and I know y'all are, y'all are major critics of what obviously DC and Warner Brothers and Zack Snyder have done with the Superman character, but something he has said, and, and I'm sure a lot of other people will agree with, including you probably, is that Marvel is actually with Captain America telling a better Superman story than DC and Warner Brothers are with Henry Cavill in that 
specific role in terms of this idealistic guy who sets the example for humanity. Yep. And while Captain America doesn't have, you know, these the same kind of powers and he is human to an extent, uh, I, I think that's an interesting parallel. And it, it is a character that that just whose values are so intact and a guy who just wears that on his sleeve. And honestly, I think it's kind of, in, in a way it's kind of dangerous to be on team Captain America because he, he, he definitely has this sort of you're either with me or against me vibe where if you stray even just a little bit from his philosophy, then maybe Captain America becomes an enemy, you know? And, and, but I think that's an interesting, an interesting quality about him that he is so firm in his beliefs and, you know, he is so, God, he is so gung-ho about protecting this friend, this this relic in his in his buddy, Bucky Barnes, in The Winter Soldier. Bucky is really his, his only link to the life he actually knew before he was obviously frozen and, and woke up in present day. So regardless of whether or not we feel the same way, it's all he really has in terms of a link to the past and, and his life back then. But there's, a, there's an interesting line that... I really kind of agreed with after Captain America has gone through all of this trouble to rescue his friend once again in, 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 while the, the cops and government and in, in Avengers are trying to apprehend him. Once they're on this ship, Bucky turns to Captain America and says, Steve, I don't know if I'm worth all this. <laughs> and as, as a fan of these movies and somebody who you know isn't, isn't the biggest fan of, of the character necessarily – I was like, yeah, right, right. Like, can you answer this for me, please? Are we speaking to Kevin Feige and, and the rest of the folks at Marvel who keep pushing Bucky Barnes down our throat? But I think this is honestly the best that that actor has been so far yeah. here. He finally has way more to do than just, again, sort of brood and, and, and sort of physically performing these action sequences. He has some really funny lines. He's got a great dynamic, not only with, Steve Rogers and Chris Evans, but also Anthony Mackie and the Falcon Matrix, some great moments. So, yeah, I mean, at least he has something to do, even if he isn't my favorite character. Yeah, I think he's pretty fun in that first movie, too, you know, in the early scenes of that movie where he and, and Steve, uh, you know, pre-Super Seer and Steve are palling around Brooklyn. Um, but but I think he hit it. Uh, you know, Bucky is a character who could use a little bit more, a little bit more attention, a little bit more development. Um, but, you know, one of the key motivations of, of this film is the fact that Bucky, as you put it, is specifically, as of this film, Steve's final link to his past. There's a development near the beginning of this movie that makes that so. Um, so I, I really do think that one of the things the audience is supposed to wonder is, well, is this truly, you know, Captain America acting sort of benevolently and uh, um, in the best interests of everybody, or, or is this sort of a purely uh, selfish act, and how can you rationalize this? Uh, it, it's an interesting sort of conundrum, but again, you see both sides of it, and I, and I love that uh, that sort of uh, difficulty, that sort of naughtiness in this. It's not really common in, in these Marvel movies. So one other nerdy basic question that without without a whole bunch of substance here, who is your favorite? What was your favorite moment 
in this movie that famous, or I'm sorry, that your favorite sort of like geek out moment where that you saw this character doing this thing or this character saying this line? What 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 were what was your favorite, or what were some of your favorite just pure comic moments from it? Well, Black Panther has been a favorite of mine since I was a kid. So the fact that we have on screen not only an iteration of Black Panther at all, but a really good iteration of Black Panther, um, because I think Chadwick Boseman is great, and I can't wait for that that film uh, to be directed by Ryan Coogler. I mean, that that sounds tremendous. Um, I mean, that's that's super exciting for me. On a pure geek level, um, the sight of Spider-Man fighting uh, Giant Man, the, uh, the sort of uh, enlarged version of Ant-Man, uh, is is pretty incredible. I mean, you never thought you'd see the day. Um, and as, as someone who is notorious for his defense of the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man movies, I have to ask you... Um, what do you think of Tom Holland as the new Peter Parker? I thought he was great. I really did. Like that that first scene with him and Robert Downey Jr. is is even though they're sitting in a room talking to each other, it's on the short list of best scenes in the movie. And and you know that's partially because Robert Downey Jr. is arguably the most charismatic person on the planet and has some great quippy lines that we're used to. Like I'm about to sit here, so you move your leg. Or he makes the comment about whatever whatever appetizer dessert Aunt May gave him outside that sounds like the worst thing ever. But yeah, they just share some really great moments and he's a kid again, you know? Like that's the thing. It's like you finally buy Peter Parker as a high school kid and it seems like they cast really well with Tom Holland. He just he brought some great energy to it and, and innocence and yeah, I mean so far, so good. And, I mean, when he's in the suit, even though we're not really seeing Tom Holland, we're hearing his voice and we're seeing Spider-Man in action. It just seems like oh, excuse me, it seems like he's in good hands again, right? And, yeah, I did like those Spider-Man movies. I like the Tobey Maguire ones enough. I can't say that I have loved a Spider-Man movie yet. But, I mean, with this Spider-Man Homecoming movie, I think that gave us a great taste of things to come. And you're right. I mean, those moments with Ant-Man were – truly spectacular and god paul rudd really brought a lot to the table in his you know sh- short appearance appearances that he has in this movie in his first meeting with with captain america where he double takes and you know wants to touch his shoulders again after he <laughs> him or when he's yeah. like, thank you for thanking of me and i mean he's he's just fantastic ant-man's been coming on cable lately and that that movie's actually kind of i think underrated already at this point and paul rudd is just it's just really nice to have him as part of the MCU and kind of an unexpected sort of delight you have there. But, Corey, you know, bringing up Spider-Man, I, you know, I agree with you that it, it, it was kind of surreal. And I, I kind of – it kind of distracted me as I was watching it. Just I couldn't process the fact that Spider-Man was a part of all this now. You know, like he's been, you know, in the, in the, in the Sony – under the Sony umbrella for so long and just hasn't been a part of this what now for, like you said, 13 or 14 movies in the MCU. So just, it was almost kind of distracting seeing Spider-Man, this major Marvel character out there with everybody. Well, I mean, for me, it's been a long time coming. Um, he's right where he needs to be. And, and the fact that at long last, you know, as somebody who, who loves for the most part, the Tobey Maguire films and has very little love for the Andrew Garfield films. I mean, to have him 
finally receive what I think is is a pretty uh, source material accurate iteration. This nerdy smartass. Uh, I mean, that to me is is just tremendously exciting. I mean, one of my favorite lines in the movie speaks to that exactly. Uh, Spider-Man is sort of uh, cracking wise at Falcon and Winter Soldier, and, and Falcon says to him, I don't know if you've ever been in a fight before, but there's not usually this much talking. I mean, that, <laughs> that to me sums up Peter Parker just about perfectly. And if that's the direction that we're going to see this character move toward in Spider-Man Homecoming and beyond, sign me up. Oh, yeah, in that moment where he's like, Guys, you remember that really old movie, The Empire Strikes Back? It's <laughs> that part where he shoots the cable thingies at the things that walk or whatever on the on the snow planet. As a high school teacher, that rings shockingly true. <laughs> and when uh, I think it's War Machine who's like, how old is this kid? <laughs> That's such a great, great moment. So, yeah, he brings a ton. But I'll be honest with you, and this is my, this is my last little tiny quibble about this, and I love how I'm using these little quibbles to set up this entire discussion about this movie that we obviously love, but so a big problem everybody had with Batman versus Superman, let me say, let me rephrase, one of the big problems that everybody had with that movie was the fact that it, it used multiple scenes in the movie to to sort of inorganically set up future installments uh, for Justice League standalone characters. Right, and and I I totally agreed. I felt like that stuff was really wonky in that movie. And to the credit of Marvel, they at least wait until the movie is over to do that. But I, I just you know I think that they're kind of just as guilty of doing it with the post credit sequences, two of which you get here, one to set up Black Panther and the other to obviously set up Spider-Man. I mean, after waiting 15 minutes or however long it takes to to sit through the 20,000 names or however many work on these Marvel movies, I want to see them sort of speak to the larger continuity and narrative that they've set up here instead of giving us teasers to these standalone movies. We already know Spider-Man and Black Panther are here and here to stay, and we're going to get movies from them. I got to admit, I mean, it's just a little bit disappointing that you wait that long and you just get these small moments for these individual characters. They're exciting and they're fun, and I can't wait for those movies, but those moments and these post-credit sequences in general are getting less and less exciting to me. Well, they're less and less um, important. I mean, there's nothing, nothing has quite lived up to, you know, the post-credit sequence at the end of Iron Man, which introduces the character in Nick Fury. Um, the Spider-Man moment that you talk about at the end of this one, the very, very end of this one, after all the credits, is hardly um, necessary. Uh, but I, I do think the Black Panther scene, which happened, comes right after the main title uh, credits, um, I, I do think that that does offer closure to... Uh, at least one pretty significant character from Civil War, while also offering us kind of hints at what's going to come in Kugler's film. Um, I mean, it does sort of raise a question of uh, who from Civil War, um, who may find themselves in Sokovia, may pop up in that that Kugler film. I I hope the answer is uh, a handful. Yeah, I, I honestly felt like standing up and cheering when when Bucky went into cryosleep during that scene. <laughs> I was like, "You're doing us all a big favor here, so thank you, 
thank you, Marvel, but something tells me he'll pop up sooner than later. So it sounds like we both love this movie. Have you seen it more than once now? I've, I've seen it twice, yeah. Okay, not surprised. I want to see it again very soon. I hope I'm able to. But there's a lot left in summer 2016. And, Corey, uh, a big question that I had going into Captain America and the rest of the summer here is, has summer 2016 peaked too early? Is this going to be the end-all, be-all movie of, of this season? Was this the best? And now we get the scraps for the rest of the summer. There are certainly some highlights to come. I can't say that many have been released since Captain America arrived, but just looking at the greater landscape, is there anything out there that you're looking forward to as much as you were Captain America? Are you feeling good about this season? Well, I'm feeling very good about this season because one of the films I was looking forward to just as much as Captain America has already come out. Um, I'm talking about Shane Black's The Nice Guys. Uh, which is currently in theaters. Shane Black, of course, is, well, to tie it back into Marvel, the the writer-director of Iron Man 3, uh, but most notably for this film, the uh, writer of, well, I, I think I think you could say classics, right? Classic, like, Lethal Weapon uh, and The Last Boy Scout, uh, which is a classic of a sort, uh, <laughs> but, but also uh, the writer-director, I think most pertinently, of 2005's sort of cult classic, uh, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang with Robert Downey Jr., uh, which is sort of a neo-noir detective Los Angeles sort of seedy mismatched buddy movie, just like The Nice Guys, which has the uh, added element of being set in the 1970s. Uh, the Nice Guys also features one incredible slapstick comedy performance from Ryan Gosling, uh, who you may remember from movies like Blue Valentine, uh, which is the opposite of slapstick comedy. Uh, but I think I like slapstick comedy Ryan Gosling maybe even a little better than brooding serious actor Ryan Gosling because he is incredible in The Nice Guys, and it is a really great, fun time for people who love their their detective movies, a little seedy, a little cynical, uh, a little bit Chinatown-inspired, but also love to have some good laughs. No, I don't know. Maybe Derek's young friends, if you asked him, he would say, that's my comedy, Blue Valentine. <laughs> it's but, his comedy. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> what? What's the big deal? No, uh, yeah, I, I can't wait to see the nice guys. And I hope I can fit it into the schedule really soon. I'm sure I'll be able to as long as it stays here in Tuscaloosa. I can't, you know, it can't promise you that they'll hold it for at least another couple of weeks. But if They're going to have to put Alice through the looking glass on, like, 19 screens. Yeah, I can't say I'll see that either, but uh, here's hoping for, for that movie. Right. So, yeah, Corey, like, what are some highlights, though, of things to come? Like, for me, I'll just name off a couple here. The number one for me is clearly Steven Spielberg's The BFG. I mean, the fact that Spielberg enrolled Dahl for one movie, it's just I'm sold. And the trailers, I think, have been magical, and I think it looks great, the fact that Spielberg's reteaming with Mark Rylance again and seemingly again and again for, for future movies to come, it just looks terrific. Are you on board with the BFG? Absolutely, especially after the word from Cannes uh, was as sort of positive as it was. Absolutely on board. I mean, just the idea of Spielberg not only adapting World Doll, but reteaming with the screenwriter of E.T., Melissa Matheson, who, who passed away last year uh, as this was in production. 
Um, I, I mean, that itself is cause for celebration. So, I, I mean, obviously, anytime Spielberg puts a movie out, you know I'm there. I know you're there. I mean, it's Spielberg, right? Absolutely. Um, apart from that, I, I've got a sort of shout out to a somewhat less magical uh, summer movie, um, a sequel, uh, the horror sequel, The Conjuring 2, uh, because I'm such a big fan of The Conjuring. You know, I think that's come up before. Uh, James Wan doing horror has uh, has it, whatever it is. Uh, and, and the sort of lo-fi horror thrills that he always seems to uh, concoct in these movies, they're, they're right up my alley. So I hope that this, uh, even if it doesn't live up to the first one, provides some much-needed uh, good thrills uh, at the theater this summer. Yeah, my my second most anticipated of, of summer 2016, even after Batman versus Superman, I think DC could have something on its hands here. Special, we'll see whether whether or not that is true. But Suicide Squad, to me, just from a marketing standpoint, has hit all the right notes. Mm. All of the trailers have been really good to me. I think that the movie has a really tremendous look, just visually, and I, I'm super pumped for this. And of course, it could disappoint, and I, I know many people expect it, too. I mean, it co-stars Jai Courtney, Joel Kinnaman, and Scott Eastwood. All of wait, them wait, 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 the wait, same movie. wait, wait. You can put all three of them in the same room at the same time? <laughs> no, and somehow the world won't disintegrate. Yeah, it's, there's not like a time cop situation? <laughs> exactly. No, I, it's, it's truly bizarre. But the weird thing, Corey, is... Jai Courtney, who, who I don't know, I feel like this podcast and others have made countless jokes about being arguably the blandest actor who's ever been in a movie. He looks like one of the best things about this movie in these he trailers. Does fun. Yeah, he, he does. He really does. And I, I just, I can't explain that. So maybe he should, he's finally fallen in the right hands. Maybe some DC source material has finally fallen in the right hands with David Ayer. And look, I, I'm not going to tell you I'm David Ayer's biggest fan. I mean, he's made some good movies, but they're all just so like intense and dour that it makes you wonder if he's the right guy to make a comic book movie. Maybe this is the right set of characters and again, the right source material and he's the guy for it. But, you know, to, to his credit and to, to the marketing, again, to the marketing's credit, it looks pretty fun actually when I think it, it was announced that this was even going to be made. I think a lot of people just assume like this is going to be just another attempt for DC to be the darker comic book franchise. And this is just going to be sad and mean and, and nasty, but they really play up the humor in these, these trailers. And it's, it's to me looks to be one of the biggest strengths of it. So I'm pretty much kind of all in on suicide squad or have you turned the corner on it? Do you think it looks good or are you still pretty staunchly anti DC? No, I think it looks good. I'm cautious. Uh, but I do think it looks good. You know, it's hard to say, you know, it's hard to blame people for thinking Suicide Squad was intended to be sad and mean, uh, and, and sort of brooding because, you know, they hired David Ayer for it. He's not really known for anything else. Uh, but, uh, you can, you can count me as cautiously optimistic for this one. It does look pretty fun. Speaking of pretty fun, I'm looking forward to Paul Greengrass's return to the Bourne franchise, Jason Bourne, which comes out in late July, reteams Greengrass with Matt Damon, 
after the pretty egregious misstep that was that Jeremy Renner spinoff thing that came out a few years back that nobody remembers. Uh, as is keeping with uh, the Bourne franchise, I don't know a thing about this plot. You know, he comes out of hiding and the CIA wants to get him and he doesn't want to be gotten. Uh, that's all I need. Green grass gets me in the door. What about you? Well, it sounds like a boring movie to me, doesn't it? Like with that, with the plot that you just laid out there, and, and yeah, like it, Green Grass, Damon, Bourne movie, sounds good. But I, I'm kind of in the camp where it's like, do we need this? Like really, like another Bourne movie? I like the character, I like the movies, but it kind of stops there. It's it's fun for a couple of hours. I know that there are major fans of this who can't wait to see Matt Damon back in the role, and I think he is a legit action star. And again, this is—it's always fun. It's undeniable how good the action is and the, the level of talent that these two guys obviously bring to the franchise. But I don't know—I'm—I'm I'm just kind of overborn at this point. It is not necessary, and that's—that's that's just because the Born Ultimatum was a pretty great ending to the Born story. Uh, but when they thought it was—yeah, well, I know. But if they thought it—if they came back and thought it was worthwhile, you know, I'm hoping uh, that uh, there is a compelling reason uh, for it to exist. We will see. Yeah, and on a lighter note here, another that I'm really pumped about is this Lonely Island movie, Pop Star, Never Stop. Me too. Me too. I'm a huge fan of Hot Rod and pretty much anything Lonely Island do. The songs that they've already released – with this movie, I'm so humble and Mona Lisa that are, are performed by this <laughs> fictitious pop star Connor are hilarious. And I know that this is going to be R rated too. So there won't be any, any leash on them when it comes to, you know, getting as raunchy as they want to. I can't wait for it. These guys are great. My only caution, I guess about it is I hope we don't see an overabundance of like celebrity cameos just because and and I have a feeling that we might. I don't think we're going to stray too far into, like, Zoolander 2 territory oh my in God. that regard. But, no, I think this is going to be a total blast. Yeah, I mean, if they are less Zoolander 2 and more along the lines of uh, the, the seal cameo that seems to be laid out in the trailer, uh, I'm all in. I mean, I was already all in already. One of my proudest things about this podcast is that this is a staunchly pro McGruber podcast, uh, as it should be. Um, along those lines, uh, I hadn't seen the trailer until recently, uh, but I'm curious about this uh, Seth Rogen animated film from August called Sausage Party, uh, which looks like the ultimate... $100 million plus uh, stoner animated comedy about talking food uh, who would rather not be chopped up and eaten if they could help it. Uh, seems like uh, kind of a blast and seems unrepentantly filthy. Yeah, I doubt if we're going to get the sort of Armageddon deep impact situation with this. It seems one of a kind to me. And, and it, it it looks hilarious, and the concept alone is, is enough to, to put me in a theater. And I know that this has been a passion project of Seth Rogen's for many years. He's been talking about it for, for what feels like five or six years now, and the fact that it's finally being realized on the big screen. Can't wait to see it. And I think these guys are just too talented of 
writers and performers for it not to be good, at least on some level. I think it's a big risk because, I mean, it looks like a Pixar movie or it looks like, it looks like Zootopia. It looks like the, these other computer animated movies. So I, I can tell you right now that there are going to be some really shocked and disappointed parents who, who get fooled into taking their kids to see this movie because kids are going to want to see this. So this is going to be a big risk and an experiment for the studio, but I doubt if they care, and, and neither do I. It just looks like a lot of fun. Yeah, it does. I mean, the theaters around here are going to be tearing their hair out, but it's going to be fun. Totally. And, and sort of like the last uh, quieter release, I guess, that I'm really excited about, we've got a new Woody Allen movie coming out this summer in Cafe Society, which seemed to get high enough marks at Cannes, which it opened this year. You and I are big Woody Allen fans, so I'm guessing you're as excited about this as I am. Yeah, I am. Um, I'll say I'm perhaps a little bit more excited than I am usually uh, because this movie actually looks really good um, because Allen let a master cinematographer actually uh, do his thing instead of just the point-and-shoot uh, style that he so commonly uh, employs in his movies. Um, apart from having the great cast, he has the great cinematographer, uh, Vittorio Storaro, uh, shooting this thing, and it looks terrific. Well, I'll disagree with you to an extent there, and that I think that even though you know people didn't love Inter- Irrational Man, I think that movie looks really interesting. I thought Magic in the Moonlight was a beautifully shot and, and set movie, so I don't think Woody has necessarily lost his visual touch. He, he always hires great cinematographers. I hear what you're saying, in that he'll hire somebody like Darius Kanji or, or somebody like that, and you'll get a, a seemingly... I would, did Darius Kanji shoot whatever works? No, that was Harris Savitas, which yeah, is almost as like, egregious. Right. Somebody like Harris Savitas, who's as talented as him, to give you a movie that looks like whatever works, that certainly happens but I think for the most part, he, he he lets the cinematographers do their thing, and that certainly seems to be the case when you hire a guy like like he has for Cafe Society. Because you're right, it looks it looks really good, and the cast, you know, I'm kind of scratching my head just a little bit because and I think Jesse Eisenberg, in the eyes of a lot of people right now, is has become kind of a warning sign as an actor. But this seems like what he has personally been working his entire career towards, being, be, playing the Woody Allen character in a Woody Allen movie, so maybe he'll give it his all. I actually still like Kristen Stewart, and the fact that this is, I think, their third movie together means that we should see some good chemistry, at least. And you've got Corey Stahl and Judy Davis and a handful of other really good actors and, and folks with experience under Woody Allen's direction, so this just looks like a lot of fun, and he always does period movies so well. Yeah, yeah, uh, I'm looking forward to it, too. Uh, quick point, Darius Kanji shot to roam with love, not that you could tell. <laughs> Ouch. Was there anything else you want to note here? I mean, there, there are movies that I'm a little bit uh, shaky about that, of course, I'll, I'll see opening day. Three big ones to point out. The first, uh, the Pixar movie, I just can't really work up too much enthusiasm about Finding Dory. Uh, I don't know if your enthusiasm level has really changed on this, but for me, it's I, I just see everything I see is like okay, that's that's nice, uh, but I don't uh, think whatever. they're showing us very much, which I think is it's either a good thing or a bad thing. E- either 
they're not very confident and they're not sharing a lot or they just don't want to share a lot. They know people will be there, and, and perhaps Andrew Stanton, who in the past has been very hands-on with his marketing, maybe he doesn't want to reveal too much. But, no, the fact that we get a Pixar movie that Andrew Stanton has written and directed, that's a big deal to me still yeah. as a fan of the studio. And I, I think the studio is still on a, a major creative role, being a huge fan of, of their last two uh, films. And that released last year. So no, I mean, the fact that he's back after the debacle that was obviously John Carter, I, he's probably looking to sort of redeem himself creatively a little bit, although I'm sure he's proud of that movie in his own way. Uh, no, I, I can't wait to see it. It's the new Pixar movie. Come on. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll be there day one. I'm just a little shaky about it. Um, I, I'm also a little shaky about uh, speaking of movies. We just haven't seen that much of yet. Uh, Star Trek Beyond, which seems comparatively slow to start rolling out its marketing campaign. Maybe, you know, Paramount is cautious. They don't want it to get lost in the the, uh, Captain America X-Men noise. Uh, But um, I I think the final trailer for that was only released a couple days ago, and I still haven't seen it yet. Uh, So uh, what I've started to see with the marketing of that movie – seems reassuring, but I was pretty burned by Into Darkness, and though this cast is is very talented, very exciting, still, um, the production history of this movie, somewhat uh, shaky uh, production, has me a little concerned about it. Uh, you know, after the first trailer, I might have agreed with you, but I think that its its latest trailer is really good, and it looks like a blast, and like you said, this cast is so much fun, and I'm pretty fired up for it, to be honest with you, because I love those Abrams Star Trek movies, both of them. I think, honestly, they're my favorite Star Trek movies to this day. Look, I know that there are those (laughs) massive haters of what he did with the franchise, but those movies are just fun. They they just are. And and I don't know, like, anytime they're on, I watch them. I always want to revisit. They hold up really well. They've aged well so far, even though they were released, what, within the past seven years or so. I think they're great, and, and I hope Justin Lin, who is a terrific action director, I think he'll bring a lot to the table, even though I know that there are Star Trek nerds out there who will say, it's not about the action. Hire somebody with less of an action sensibility. That's just kind of what it's become now, and, and I think you just should hope for them to be, make the best movie. I think that they're reverent enough to the source material and the franchise, and they've they've given us a super vibrant cast who seem to – really embody those characters really well. I love it, and I can't wait for this next one. Well, I I remain cautiously optimistic, uh, just as I do with uh, my third sort of shaky choice from the summer. Um, I don't know how dialed you are into the world of Internet uh, outrage with a new daughter at home, uh, but you might know that uh, Paul Feig's Ghostbusters reboot is something of a lightning rod these days uh, with uh, angry nerds on the Internet. Uh, I'll grant you this. The two trailers that have been released so far are not what you'd call great. But comedy trailers, particularly the trailers of Paul Feig's movies, are customarily not that great. And I have pretty well liked all of them so far. And in spite of the jokes not really landing in these Ghostbusters trailers, I have to say, I still think it looks kind of cool. I like the look of all four of the ladies in the Ghostbusters get up. I like the color scheme and general design of the movie. 
I think this is still promising. Am I I crazy? No, and honestly, you shouldn't even have to ask that question or use that tone. I think the outrage is ridiculous, to be honest with you, and it's really – it just feels kind of empty and simple to me. I mean, I think it really boils down to the fact that there are women playing the roles that were traditionally played by men, and and the fact that that – the simplicity of that idea gets under the skin of people out there, and I should single out men probably – yeah, you it, probably it just, should. Yeah, it just, it really, it's its disappointing. Like, it just disappoints you about humanity and, and the fact that this, this trailer is what now statistically the most disliked movie trailer in YouTube history, right, with the distinction that it earned recently. It's ridiculous. This movie looks fine to me. The special effects look really fun. The cast is great. Paul Feig is obviously a really talented comedy director. Honestly, for me, it's more just a fundamental issue with the fact that it falls in line with the rest of these reboots in the modern studio system and, and mm-hmm. what Hollywood obviously depends on. It's disappointing that instead of, you know, making a, a new sci-fi movie and launching a new franchise with these really talented actresses, you have to depend on uh, an existing property. You have to have a brand to go along with it. And if it must be Ghostbusters, then I guess it must be. And you just have to hope they make the best Ghostbusters movie that they can make. It seems like they're, they're, paying a lot of respect to the original Ghostbusters movie, and, and that's great. And look, the jokes, like you said, they're they're okay. They're fine. Some land, some don't. But like you said, that's comedy, and I don't know what sets this one apart from any other reboot or any other comedy. It looks fine to me. Will I see it? Maybe, maybe not, but am I outraged about it? Absolutely not. I really don't care. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm with you almost 100% there, but I, I will definitely be seeing it. Uh, because Paul Feig has earned the benefit of the doubt. Absolutely. So, Corey, before we we end things here, now that we're done with summer, I want to ask you, the news broke recently that we could have already seen the end of Daniel Craig as James Bond, and that means we got to cast another James Bond. Now that he, after four movies and, and making a couple of billion dollars for for the James Bond franchise, He's moving on. He's tired of playing James Bond even after they he was reportedly offered $100 million to reprise the role. And, and Craig, I guess, just is, is no longer interested in, in playing 007. So real quick, Corey, cast the next James Bond. Dan Stevens, the star of the guest. Dan, I keep hearing Dan Stevens. First of all, tell me who Dan Stevens is because I don't watch Downton Abbey. Uh, well, did you see The Guest? No. Uh, he is the star of The Guest, and uh, that is what I am going off of, his okay. uh, sort of suave badassness in The Guest, uh, the Adam Wingard thriller from a few years ago. That's a great movie, by the way. Um, I, you know, I, I, I think he'd be great. I, I keep hearing Tom Hiddleston. I'm not thrilled about that. Um, but if they didn't want to cast uh, the same old, same old, you know, they wanted to step outside the box and get somebody like uh, Idris Elba or somebody like that, I'm on board with that, too. Idris Elba's great. He might be a little older than what they're looking for by this point, but he's great. See, that's the thing. I think they're going to start fresh, and I think they're going to cast somebody younger so that they have, you know, somebody they can count on for the next few years and, and maybe a handful of these movies. and. 
that could be Tom Hiddleston. That could be maybe somebody like Michael Fassbender, somebody like Tom Hardy. There's a lot of really obvious names to, to throw out there, these A-listers who are already established, but may not necessarily need James Bond to boost their careers. So you can make an argument for somebody like Hiddleston who, who might need James Bond, but there, I think that there are some interesting choices out there, and, and I think that they're going to make a good choice just because of how many good options they have. And yeah, if they think outside the box, that's great. I mean, there are some wild cards out there. I've heard, I've heard Idris Elba, obviously, and and you know, this goes back to the Ghostbusters thing, where, of course, just the the very sound of Idris Elba's name, despite what he could absolutely bring in terms of acting prowess and presence and physicality to a role like James Bond, he's a black James Bond. We can't have that, right? And and just to hear people whine about that just on a fundamental level, it's just it's it, just like the Ghostbusters thing. It's ridiculous. The fact that the idea of Idris Elba playing James Bond just because he's black, it won't work for you, it gets under your skin, it's just a really toxic way of thinking about these things, We're really regardless of movies, just living in general. And again, a, a disappointing reflection of, of just how a lot of people think out there and how they want their frame, they want their frame filled with Nothing but white people. If any, if any diversity happens to sort of inch its way onto the screen, they want it out of there, and and it disrupts their pleasure in watching a movie or a television show. I mean, it, it's just it's really it's nauseating at this point. The fact that we're having to even have that discussion, you know, instead of hey, Idris Elba, Idris is a hell of an actor. He 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 pretty much checks every single box to for what makes a great James Bond. Except oh wait. He's not a white dude, so we can't have this, right? I mean, I don't know. I, I hate to get so boxy about this, but it just, again, along with the whole Ghostbusters thing, it's just getting really exhausting. Yeah, it's enraging. It really is. And and not the least reason of which I, I, I thought nerds were supposed to have imaginations, right? You know, you don't need to make everything frustratingly literal, you can step outside the box, think a little differently, uh, and just look for the best person for the job. Uh, you know, as a film fan, I, I think you're like me, and that you want diversity of voices in films, because seeing the same old thing over and over again gets kind of boring. Let's Let's see more voices. Let's hear new perspectives. Let's see more representation in film, because uh, for the pretty basic selfish reason of I want to see cool new things that I've never seen before. Yeah, I just want to see a great James Bond movie. And, and pretty much everything tells me that if yourself would make a great James Bond, I think it was, uh, again, Ben Stark, who is a huge James Bond fan, he, he threw out, he, if they're going to reboot it and go younger and, and focus on the future of James Bond, John Boyega could be an interesting choice for James Bond. So, but if you if you throw this name out there, it's like, no, no, no. It goes back to that whole thing. And it's just stupid. So it's like, okay, well, let me think of just this white British dude. And, and we can just move on and we can all be happy with this same, same old, same old. You know, and that that's kind of been what it has been. You know, obviously, obviously throughout the history of James Bond, you stray from that and you're disrupting everybody's, you know, happy universe. So whatever. But there are, there are some great choices out there, including those guys. And, and I, I think, yeah, again, it's going to be hard to screw it up, and, and they haven't yet. I think that there has – I don't think there's been a bad James Bond yet cast in the role. I think every single one of them has brought something different and fun and, and just 
good overall to the table, even if they've all made some bad movies. I think that signs, you know, there's there's precedent there that suggests they're probably going to cast this the right way. I agree. Um, I I definitely agree. I'm sad to see uh, Craig go. Um, I would have hoped he would go out on a higher note than Spectre, which is fine, but I don't think it's anybody's ideal James Bond movie. Uh, so if it's true, um, you know, that's too bad, but we'll always have Casino Royale and Skyfall. Absolutely. And, and what will be interesting, Corey, just, again, philosophically, what do you want James Bond to be right now? Do you want to continue what Craig obviously started and in, in what he did to help reinvent the character as this very physical, brooding, bulldog, dangerous character that, again, made the franchise billions, and that's with a B, billions of dollars, do, do you do you desert that business plan or do you change it up and cast somebody like Tom Hiddleston who I, I don't think can bring the same level of physicality and toughness as a Daniel Craig. And, uh, you know, he's somebody I think will have to reinvent the character again, perhaps in the mold of a, a quippier Roger Moore type James Bond. So there's a big decision upcoming for the folks who, who make them. Yeah, the Bond movies have always reflected sort of the tenor of the times, the popular trends in entertainment. Uh, and, and that being said, somebody like Tom Hiddleston or, you know, the aforementioned Dan Stevens, somebody quippier, more sort of conventionally charming than, than Daniel Craig, uh, would I think pretty well reflect the popularity of our, you know, smart ass superheroes that audiences flock toward. I think Spectre moved a little bit in that direction. But what'll be interesting is moving away from the continuity heavy uh Craig Bond movies. I mean that's not something you would ever think to levy, you know, against the Bond movies, right? Before the Craig movies, they didn't care about continuity, but these Craig movies really care about continuity. So to recast Bond all of a sudden is I think going to be pretty jarring for modern audiences. They do have to tread lightly, I think, for the first time. I'd say let it go. Let the continuity go. I've never been interested in it, to be quite honest with you. It's nothing I've cared about during this Daniel Craig run, even though several of the movies have been very interesting and fun and, and the plots have, have been pretty strong and they've, they've depended on it for story. I'm It's just a, a James Bond traditionalist. I'm somebody who can let that go. I agree, and I think the continuity actually bogged down Spectre. Uh, pretty substantially. Totally. All right. Well, we we sort of did it. We recast James Bond. Pass. Yeah. Here, yeah. I'll, I'll take a check. Totally. All right, Corey. Well, everybody, check us out on Twitter at Aspect Radio. Find us on iTunes. We're on Facebook too at Aspect Radio. Find Corey stuff on artsbham.com. Find mine on al.com. And until next time, I am Ben Flanagan, and I'm Corey Kraft. This has been Aspect Radio. Thanks for listening.